Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. Really excited to introduce today's guest, Stephanie Levere. She is someone whose work and impact I have deeply admired. From a personal point of view, the Facebook group that she helped launch, Reading Science in Schools, was a massive help for me as I began my science of reading journey back in 2019. You can feel quite isolated as a teacher when you first engage with the science of reading or learning, and communities like the Reading Science in Schools Facebook group can provide support that might not be available at your own school. Steph is one of those rare people who are incredibly humble, yet extremely knowledgeable. In this chat, we speak about how the Reading Science in Schools Facebook group uh, that now has over 50,000 members came about, why we need to cut the fluff, what a structured literacy block can look like for the pre-primary stage, what an evidence-informed approach looks like in the primary classroom, and even how she is using ChatGPT for fluency building. It is jam-packed full of knowledge for teachers, and no matter whether you are a researcher, school leader, or classroom teacher, I promise you will get a bucket load of tips. Here is my conversation with Stephanie Levere. Thanks for joining me today, Steph. I've been a huge admirer of your work and part of the reason for starting up this podcast was so that I could chat to people like yourself in more depth. I find people's stories really fascinating and would love to hear a bit about who you are and how you ended up in your current position. Thanks, um, Brennan. It's really great to be on um, the podcast. Um, so um, a little bit about um, the background. I started off as a um, speech pathologist, actually, um, and my first, that was many years ago. I didn't last long as a speech pathologist, funnily enough. I um, probably worked about 18 months uh, in a great organisation, actually, but I kind of realised quite early on that I wanted to get into teaching. As a speech path, I was working with um, students that um, needed literacy remediation as well, um, quite specific areas of need. So that kind of prompted my interest as well. And I had an incredible mentor as a speech pathologist, uh, Anne Batista, who got me interested in literacy. And uh, we actually both then pursued teaching degrees. Uh, her being a speech pathologist of you know 20 plus years experience and me only having a, um, less than two, both embarked on our teaching uh, postgrads together, um, different unis. So, uh, and then um, finished that. Wasn't overly impressed with the content of uni, but also young enough to just kind of get through it and not be overly worried about it. Um, and did a few stints, and um, then went up to Derby District High School, which is uh, one of the biggest schools in the Kimberley area. And a couple of years in from that, uh, the Kimberley Schools Project started up, which um, some of your listeners might know about, uh, which is sort of, I guess, directed by Lorraine Hammond, Professor Lorraine Hammond. And so I did a lot of upskilling uh, during that process. And I was a literacy coordinator too uh, for a time in Derby. Um, and that was kind of, that was, I suppose, the 
impetus I needed as well to change my practice. So as a speech pathologist, you, you know, I felt like I did have good knowledge of, um, you know, how the brain learns to read, um, good practice in terms of literacy uh, instruction, I suppose, more at like that sort of individual small group level. But what I didn't have was that high impact teaching strategies, um, the concept of like a daily review, uh, all those sorts of elements that were lacking. So uh, I wasn't as immune to, well, I was, sorry, I was more immune to maybe the balanced literacy ideas than a, a normal graduate teacher, I'd say, but I still needed a lot of support in my actual instruction and how to make it stick. Particularly, we were, you know, we have quite a lot of students up there that were very, very behind in literacy and trying to make gains for the, those students very quickly. So yeah, that's where it sort of began and then it's just carried on from there. Yeah, look, a couple of questions um, just on that, you know. So you kind of mentioned how you're only in a, a speech uh, pathologist for a couple of years. What, what kind of, um, you know, drove you away from it or towards teaching in a way? Uh, well, interestingly, I actually always wanted to be a teacher, um, you know, and then I somehow got persuaded into a course in speech pathology and forever grateful, um, had really great experience and I learned so much in my undergraduate course, but um, yeah. I sort of followed, stayed true to my <laughs> original plans and I ended up going into teaching, but um, I don't regret that pathway. It was a slightly longer pathway, but I um, I value that pathway because I, I really do feel that I learned a lot more in speech pathology for teaching than I than I did in my um, teaching uh, postgrad, which I think is experience of quite a few people that have done a similar path to me. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that as well. Um, and then, so starting off in high school, though, so what was that like? Well, no, it's a, it's a district high school, meaning it's a K to ten or K to twelve, sorry, okay. school. Yeah. Um, but my focus as literacy coordinator was mostly in a primary school, um, yeah. but also a bit in terms of remediation uh, in the high school as well. So. Um, yeah, all, all over, right from K, looking at, you know, lots of oral language um, um, and then right up to remedial kids in high school, getting them back on track. And um, that's what uh, really got me interested in Pamela Snow's research, um, looking at her research in that sort of um, the, sorry, the literacy area, looking at students being becoming disengaged um, as they're going through school um, and ways to prevent that and also ways to, um, I suppose, try and remediate so that we can get students more engaged coming to school, that sort of thing. So. Yeah, awesome. Um, and, you know, from there you've kind of ended up being involved in, you know, the reading science in schools group. You know, how did that come about? That came about uh, because I had a baby uh, in Derby and uh, I was at home and Natalie Campbell, who we had a bit of contact with uh, over Facebook groups that other already existed, uh, and Jasmine Hall, and we decided we wanted to start up a Facebook group for evidence-based practice in reading instruction because it was all something we were quite interested, in, interested about. We'd never met each other before. We just sort of knew each other online, as many people would understand in the world of Twitter, you, you feel like you know people when you haven't actually met them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it just sort of snowballed. I think we kind of did started it at the right time when everyone was starting to, um, at a obviously there's been people that have been dedicated to evidence-based structured literacy for a long time. Yeah. Uh, we feel like it really picked up and gained a lot more momentum in maybe the last five years uh, because of... Um, 
like all sorts of particularly people like Lorraine Hammond in Australia who has made it her mission to send that get that message across so um we just went with the the flow of what was already happening in Australia and decided to create that group um thinking it was just going to be you know another Facebook group that's out there and it's since taken off and we've sort of made it into a bit more of a, a resource hub and website and things like that yeah, so for those that aren't familiar with, with the Facebook group, can you just give us a bit more information about, you know, like what it is and, and I guess what the goals are for it now? Sure. So we've now, um, we're a larger team. So it's myself, Natalie Campbell, Jasmine Hall, Jasmine Shannon, uh, Leah Carmody um, and uh, Teresa Conrad are all the admins on the page. And so... We have more of a focus now on developing resources and guides. So um, we, it's a Facebook group essentially just called Reading Science in Schools, only available for Australian and New Zealand educators because we want to keep it relevant. Uh, there's a lot of American groups already out there. And we're, we're very big on moderation. Uh, we want to make sure that there's no misinformation being spread because we have noticed that on other online platforms that people believing that something is evidence-based but it might not be you know um, explained as well or there might be some misconceptions about what the science of reading is so we try to moderate quite heavily in terms of always responding or always ensuring someone's responding to comments uh, and then we've now adapted that to a website so all our guides and resources for anyone that it, that it may be outside Australia and New Zealand can also benefit from those online. Yeah, and then uh, I guess from there, you've you've also now started the the grammar project. Yeah, the grammar. Oh, the yeah, the grammar project uh, came out from my work at Seven Time Primary School. Uh, yeah. We were implementing a fine grain scope and sequence for syntax, and um, and then essentially what we realised is a lot of schools wanted to focus on grammar, sentence level writing. Uh, the writing revolution, things like that. Uh, and we were all kind of working in our own silos, trying mm. to create resources. And we know that these resources take a lot of time to make. Uh, grammar and syntax, you know, is specifically syntax has been an area that teachers that I've worked with have flagged as an area of professional need. They haven't felt comfortable, uh, possibly because we didn't really get that instruction at university. Yeah. I didn't with my teaching postgrad so it's an area that they're not feeling particularly strong in so how can we expect teachers to create resources if they don't feel completely comfortable in that subject matter so in a way to upskill teachers but also create resources to save time uh, that's what we want to do you know reduce workload we thought we'd create a syntax project involving uh, quite a lot of participants from all different schools uh, who made the resources in their own time. And we're still, still got a long way to go, but we've got about a semester's work already uploaded on that site. And then from there, the morphology project started, which is the other half of the grammar project. Uh, and that was with uh, staff from River Gums Primary School and also Jasmine Hall from uh, Fremantle uh, LDC. So we created a lot of morphology resources to go with the reading science in schools uh, granular sequence of morphology so and still working on that one as well though that will be a couple of years I think to get that where we want it to be so they're all just big projects that will be forever working and improving on as well. Yeah just kind of backtracking a little bit um, you know so when you talk about syntax what are you actually talking about? 
So I, if you're looking at grammar, you've got most of the time you'll see grammar and punctuation, you know, within the same phrase. Uh, so, but under grammar, you've got your syntax, which is your sentence structure, your parts of speech, uh, you know, your nouns, your verbs, your adjectives, all that sort of stuff, and your clauses and your subjects, your predicates, everything to do with a sentence. And that comes under syntax. And then the other half of grammar is your morphology, which you're looking at your affixes, your bases, your roots, that sort of thing. You're adding um, ED to make past tense, etc. cetera. Uh, so they're the two components of grammar. But then on, in addition, you've also got got punctuation so a more appropriate title for the project would probably be the syntax and punctuation uh, project and then the morphology project but that's just too much of a mouthful so we went with the <laughs> syntax project which includes punctuation and then the morphology project <laughs> yeah well you know look I know a lot of teachers you know around Australia and, and others that are also accessing it are really appreciative of, of these resources that are coming out and um, you know, it's really needed. Like you said, uh, I think part of the, the issue is, is that because teachers uh, don't have the education and that knowledge in yeah. what it even is in the first place, uh, they they don't know how to teach it at all. Yeah. And so, they, like you said, they've got no chance of being able to develop. Um, yeah, and that was me as resources. well. Um, yeah. Even, yeah, we do do a bit of grammar through speech pathology, but that was a long time ago for me as well. I had to upskill uh, in the last few years significantly and majority of that came from um, the late William Van Cleve. I did his webinars and his um, mm -hmm. online courses, which were just brilliant. Um, you know, the likes of Lynn Stone. Like, um, there's some absolute experts out there that know the content very well. And so I had to upskill myself. So it's, uh, and I still feel like there's quite a lot to learn, but uh, it is a lot to get your head around on top of everything else. So if we can alleviate some of that workload uh, by providing resources, then we can focus on the delivery. There is a bit of a risk with PowerPoints that, you know, you if you don't understand it properly, you've got a PowerPoint and then it's just being delivered and it's not going to be delivered as effectively if you know the content really well. So we do. it does come with a bit of a warning that understand the work first, make sure you feel really confident with it, look at the recommended resources we have on our page, like the Linstone webinars or um, the William Van Cleve book, the, um, the Writing Revolution. Get an understanding first before you take a deep dive because otherwise it's not going to be effective. Yeah, 100%. You know, and, and it's that, that fine line that we treat, isn't it, where you've got so much to learn but then we've uh -huh. got to teach at the same time. And, and so you've got these teachers who are, you know, I guess they're starting to engage with, you know, whether it's the science of reading or whatever you want to call it, structured literacy. Uh -huh. um, and they start to realise, oh, you know, yeah, I probably could be teaching better. Yes. And then they want to, they want to do it all tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but it, it, yeah. And it can just it's, be so hard yeah. to overwhelming. take those. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Hugely overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, you've had uh, a couple of really good mentors uh, as you've, you've kind of come through and it's yes, helped yeah. fast track your, your development. Have you had any yeah. sort of, you know, challenging situations as you've, you've gone along? 100%. Yeah, um, I have had incredible mentors and I'm always very grateful for those people. Um, Lorraine Hammond's a big one. Um, you know, even my current principal at the moment, learning a lot through what he has achieved, Kendall, this is Kendall Lange through and um, at the school I'm working at now. Um, and also um, just a lot of colleagues and that way. But there are always challenging situations when you're 
advocating for change. Yeah. You're always going to have the resistors, all uh, the people that need a little bit more time to fully embrace and believe what you're trying to put across, particularly because in the past education, you know, it's it's been a lot of fads and uh, in the new program that everyone's excited about and then it dies off and then the school leadership team brings in something else. And so a lot of, particularly a lot of experienced teachers feel like this is just something else and in another few years it's going to change. Uh, so to try and convince those experienced staff that although education has been like that and it can be like that, which is really frustrating, I get that as well, this time it's a little bit different because what we're, well, it's a lot different. We're, we're utilising our research base of what best practice reading is, how reading, how reading is developed, uh, how students learn to read, and, and obviously what goes on with that um, as well with writing and um, more broadly with learning in general. We're utilising that research to inform our practice as opposed to just uh, this is the next thing that's going to be big, this is the next exciting thing because it's new and shiny. Um, so I think by, but, yeah, there's, we're pushing any sort of change or driving an agenda. There's always going to be people that will resist it. Uh, and so it's just working with those people. I, and I suppose it's having an understanding of where they're coming from and um, showing a bit more, you know, compassion and empathy as, uh, as well. Uh, but also making sure that we're putting student needs first and always bringing it back to what is going to help, what's actually going to help the students. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered that question properly. <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. You know, and, and I think it's it's a really uh, common theme that, that does come up for people as they do start to engage with, you know, the science of learning and, uh, you know, they start to make those changes within their own classroom and then they start to, you know, question what else is happening around them. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they do get a lot of kickback and um, mm-hmm. it can be quite hard to deal with that first because, you, mm-hmm. you know, you, you often think, well, aren't we all in this together? Aren't we all trying yeah. to get, uh, you know, the, the same outcomes? We want our students to learn. Yeah. And, what, you know, why do you keep going with this, uh, you know, whatever the program is or whatever you're doing uh, when it's mm-hmm. not, informed by the evidence and it can be really yeah. quite frustrating i think um you know that's that's probably a common feeling that that a lot of those those teachers get out there absolutely uh, you, know, what, you know what sort of advice would you have for for teachers that are starting to feel that way yeah i suppose most of my perspective has come from being in like a leadership position trying to implement change but it can be just as frustrating if not more when you're a teacher working and trying to convince the rest of the school or your admin school that maybe this is the best way forward or maybe we need a different approach for this. Uh, and you can feel quite alone. And I have been in that position, well, somewhat uh, as a teacher. And you, you do have to have thick skin. Uh, you do have to look after yourself as well and find your people. Uh, find people that you know, are going to be supporters of you as well because to continually be trying to convince other people or push something that uh, they're just not interested in is going to take a toll. It'll take a toll on your mental health as well, which I think a lot of teachers do find. I mean, I've had a school leader say to me, not at any school I'm currently working at, uh, say, you know, we're not a science of reading school, Steph. We're an evidence-based practice school. And I was like, 
okay, well, that is a misconception in itself because mm. people think the science of reading is a program or one, one, you know, one very uh, specific pedagogy, which we know it's not. It's it's the collection and body of research. So even that discussion was really frustrating because you want to show them and tell them everything that you've learned or that you, you want to try, um, but you're not really met with that open, open-mindedness, I suppose. I guess my advice would be to find your people, uh, try things, uh, try to come from it as a solution focused as well. So if you are finding your class has difficulty with something and you want to implement a structured literacy approach, go about it in a way that you're asking to pilot something, you're asking to try something rather than coming from it. This isn't working. I don't know why we're doing it this way. Everyone knows this is not the right way. Uh, asking for, I would like to try this. This has got a lot of research behind it. Could I pilot that in my classroom? Uh, it doesn't always work, but it's a strategy that, that can work. Uh, I do feel like the message is getting out there a bit more as well. Um, and I guess the the one other option is to, to find a, a school. There are more out there, particularly in the cities, um, that are willing to embrace structured literacy and the science of reading uh, because there are there are a lot a lot out there that now that are, are trying to go down that pathway yeah great advice um look just for this next part of the, the conversation i'm going to throw a few different scenarios at you so with this first one um so say you're a kindergarten or reception or foundation teacher you mm -hmm. know whatever you, you call it uh in your, yeah. your state or jurisdiction yeah. and you want to run a more structured literacy block what could mm -hmm. that look like well, you could jump onto our Reading Science in Schools Facebook page and have a look at some of our, our structured timetable examples. Uh, I think when it comes to structured literacy in pre-primary, you want to get your bang for your buck. So I would be looking at what is your phonics program? Not only what is, and when I say program, I don't necessarily mean commercial program. I, I mean, what is your curriculum program or sequence that you're using in the school? Uh, what does that look like in terms of instructional routine? Let's make it explicit and as effective as possible. Uh, cut fluff, uh, which is one of the great Anita Archer quotes in mm -hmm. terms of if you're targeting literacy, we want to get the biggest bang for our buck. We need to have decoding. We need to have encoding. We need to have, you know, phony manipulation tasks in there, um, some dictation, uh, high-frequency words, uh, and so, and drilling, for lack of a better word, to get more repetitions. So that's yep. why a daily review is so um, important, to get those repetitions in, uh, rather than having a half an hour activity where they're sticking on, you know, pictures of um, various things to the letter they begin with. So we have to come back to, although it we might all be calling it explicit instruction, what does that actually look like in your school? And you can get so much out of a half an hour phonics and, or, and daily review session uh, when you prioritise the repetitions and prioritise the tasks that are going to lead to uh, high increases in the literacy development with encoding, decoding. So prioritise the high impact instructional strategies, mm -hmm. uh, implement decodable readers is an obvious one, you know, um, that as opposed to predictable readers, that's quite an easy one. Things like paired reading is really good. Even in pre-primary, you can start with lists of words mm -hmm. uh, and have students reading the words. Again, it's all about getting those repetitions in. And then we also have to look at the other side of the reading room. 
uh, which we want to do explicit vocabulary uh, and a lot more work on oral language and oral comprehension. And that comes from your rich literature, your rich texts. And what we do as a school at Serpentine is develop templates. So we have a vocabulary template already to go. We have a, uh, a syntax template so that after we're doing a particular book or beforehand, we're introducing vocabulary uh, in the same way um, using the same strategies so that you have these consistent approaches. And again, by having these consistent approaches and your or your instructional routines, you're saving time because the students start to learn the routine. You get it done quicker because you get better at it. You become more effective at having very um, your, your, instru your instructional language as well. It's very specific and you're not putting lots of fluff in there because you used to do that routine. Uh, and it stops that sort of busy work from creeping in. And that's what I see in a lot of pre-primary classes um, that I've worked in in the past is that busy work creeping in um, that's under the big banner of literacy, but when it's not actually helping literacy that much. And so there's always this argument that, oh, we haven't got enough time, we haven't got enough time, but if we actually look at high value instructional routines and stick to them there is actually a lot of time for other stuff we just waste I think a bit too much time on the stuff that isn't making the biggest difference yeah you know um, I think like one of the things I hear a lot about is you know teachers will say oh but I want to hear them read you know um, mm -hmm. in, in their, their reading groups or whatever it is that they usually yeah. uh, have and, and so they're like they're not used to mm -hmm. uh, you know, doing the whole class teaching, what, what sort yes. of advice do you have for that? I mean, you can still do both. It's not necessarily one or the other. But if you if you actually did it over the week and you looked at how much teacher instruction a student's getting across the week, every student is going to get more if you prioritise that group instruction with opportunities to obviously extend those students who are above um, and cater for those students who are, are weaker. Uh, and that is still achievable in a whole class setting. And they're still going to be all better off with that because adding up that instructional routine across the week. Across the week. Uh, but after that, there's nothing to say you can't do some small targeted work. That's absolutely mm -hmm. fine. But what we want to do is have the crux of our instruction at that whole class level where possible to maximise the instruction they're getting across the week. And that's where I think paired reading fluency as an example is a really good one to bring in, particularly it's particularly effective in like year, year one and two as well, uh, where they do have that, uh, well, they hopefully they have some most of the initial code there. So they um, they can read text, decodable text at their instructional uh, level, I suppose, um, rather independently when we're just practicing fluency. So instead of a guided reading session, which can take, you know, 30, 40, sometimes I've seen them go for an hour of rotations or different groups on different days, that's a routine that you get done in 10 minutes. And if you add up how much actual reading time they're getting across the week, it's more than if you were to spend that much time on guided reading every day with all those other busy tasks that you have to do to keep everyone else on task and everyone else quiet while you're working with this very specific group. So um, pull aside groups work really well um, as well, but it's, I, yeah, it's, I guess it's making sure that you're investing your time into the instruction that's going to improve, uh, make the biggest improvements and the biggest gains. Yeah, cool. So what sort of text should they be uh, doing for things like uh, fluency? Uh, fluency uh, text, there's 
Well, it depends if they're still requiring like decodable texts. Um, but once they're pretty familiar with the initial code and they're starting to go into the extended code, putting in some authentic text as well is really important. Uh, we use lots of short text, but you want them for fluency text. You really want them to have a high accuracy because you don't want them practicing like incorrectly uh, and not being not having being able to be picked up for those errors. Um, having the high accuracy, but it's the developing the fluency. Uh, we have. Um, thinking a document that outlines some recommended go-to websites of really good fluency texts and off the top of my head readworks is a really good one of um once students come up to code will read is obviously uh and uh there's there's lots of short text poems are really good um children's poems because it allows for like expression uh and even uh, playwrights, all sorts of things. I'm ha I'm experimenting at the moment, having a bit of fun with it with um uh, chat GTP. Um, yeah. Have you had a look at it yet? That's yeah. great for fluency text. It's brilliant. Um, not for decodable stuff, but for um authentic text that you want short passages, and you can link it to if you're doing knowledge units at the school, you can link it to those, or you can link it to topics that you're teaching in class so that it's actually relevant. Uh, and um, so we're having a bit of a play with those, and it's been um been quite exciting. That's cool. All right. Um, next scenario. Oh, is there anything else you want to add to that sort of? Um, no, I think that's yeah. yeah cool. <laughs> so with this next one, so your school is on board with the science of reading for the early years, but you're a year four teacher, and I'm sure what that means for you. That's a tricky. That is, um, I I feel for the upper primary teachers or middle middle primary teachers when. Um, first introducing the science because it's a particularly schools often start with phonics. And so middle and upper school teachers, primary school teachers, like, okay, what does that mean for us though? Yeah. Uh, it would depend on your students because, yes, usually, you know, you, you're going much beyond phonics after year two, you're going, uh, you know, into morphology content and things like that. But if you've got gaps, you need to go right back to phonics and find out what those gaps are. So it depends on what your students are are so I would say start off with you need to do assessment and you need to do universal screening so things like Dibbles and Acadians are brilliant just to have a universal screen to see to flag what students are requiring extra assistance and what do I need to further investigate um, but I suppose middle and upper primary you, you do want to be looking at a lot more morphology content which will help spelling and vocabulary um, a lot more complex text with opportunities of explicit vocabulary uh, that are linked to, uh, you know, you, you've got knowledge or you're developing that background knowledge, whether you're doing knowledge units or novel studies or whatever, you want to be trying to develop that background knowledge to aid that comprehension process. Um, so you can still do all the, you know, the great texts and everything else that you've been doing in the past. Uh, it's just a bit more of a structured approach to targeting vocabulary um, your background knowledge, and then linking in writing embedded opportunities because we know that when we write about text that we read about, uh, it aids reading comprehension. So not only are we helping our reading comprehension, but we're also, not only are we helping our writing, but we're also helping our reading comprehension too. So we have example timetables as well on um, reading science in schools and on the website. Uh, which is un that Jasmine Hall has put and compiled together for three to six. That's a really good place to start. Uh, I can also recommend the Serpentine Primary School Playbook. We've outlined exactly what our um, what structured literacy looks like across the primary school. 
And um, you can see that in the middle and upper primary, it's very much um, about that morphology and the spelling conventions. We do, um, you know, we do have spelling programs as well, in addition to developing that background knowledge uh, around there. So, yeah, so I guess it's, um, it's a bit different to lower primary, but it's still a structured approach uh, and quite explicit in terms of making sure your outcomes are, are very explicit there too. Awesome. Uh, you know, lots of really great advice there. And, 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 you know, are there any other sort of assessments that you would, you know, you mentioned uh, divils or divils and Acadians. Is there anything else that you'd, you'd recommend teachers start to look at? Yeah, well, everyone in WA calls it divils, but everyone over in yeah, the know. So. <laughs> uh, oh, there's some great assessments um, out there. Um, for Do you mean for middle, upper primary? Uh, well, I guess we, we didn't really talk yeah. about it um, as much. Oh, really, just across really. the, the board? Yeah, yeah. I recommend going onto the Motif website as well, the yep. by Macquarie uh, University. That has some really great assessments on there. Uh, Dibbles or Acadians are probably the best ones to track cohort progress as well. You can very clearly see uh, what any change, what what result that's going to have, uh, and you can see very easily. The, like at the beginning of the school year, the end of the school year, and what gains have been made in students in terms of where they're falling. Are they significantly at risk? Are they borderline or are they above average? Uh, so that's definitely the one I would suggest everyone to go with. Whether or not you're using Dibbles or Acadians, even if you, if you can't do that because maybe your school's not using that, measuring oral reading fluency, that is a simple thing you can do. Uh, and you don't necessarily need those two assessments to do it. You can actually just measure oral reading fluency using sort of an appropriate age-appropriate text uh, and getting a bit of an average if you do a couple of different texts and tracking that. as a, And that's a way to go away from this idea of levels There's, because we know that leveled readers or that a level doesn't really tell us much information. Uh, they're not the most reliable measure um, either. So what else can we do? Because as teachers, we do like to have that data. We do like to have that number. So yes. An easy swap is just to measure that oral reading fluency. And you can still ask comprehension questions and things like that to get an idea of what they're understanding. But we do know that obviously comprehension is largely dependent on fluency. So if they've got an oral reading fluency you know, below 90 words per minute, they're going to have um, significant probably difficulties comprehending that text um, and vocabulary and also background knowledge. So it is when it comes to measuring comprehension, as long as we're understanding that that's not a skill, a single skill as such, it's a, a product of a lot of different variables, then um, that's it's still a good idea to look at that area too. Cool. All right, so now we're, we're kind of, you know, moving up uh, into that whole school level. So how should schools go about implementing the changes, you know? So say, for example, you're, uh, you know, a, a school leader and you want to go about this the right way and you want to plan for it and, and you know, all the changes that you're going to make, what, what sort of advice would you give there? So it can be really overwhelming. Um, I've, um, in an informal capacity, not, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of principals and uh, about where to start. Uh, Seventine, we're also a Fogarty Advance alumni school. So we do often have principals and school leadership teams come to us for advice and um, to come and observe what's happening at the school. Uh, so, I mean, WA, we're really lucky. We've got what's called Fogarty Advance, uh, and it's an initiative that 
for school leadership teams and for schools to go into. And it's a three-year program and it essentially helps you do exactly this. Develop a plan, uh, a change management plan, if you if you will, and um, have quite specific objectives. Uh, and, it, and it also it looks at organize, organisational health and various other things that help you actually implement change and measure the change in the school. But if you're going about it on your own and you don't have that support, then it can be really easy to be over, overwhelmed because there's so much and you can read so much and you can think, oh, we have to do look at our phonics, we have to implement daily reviews, or we have to look at um, comprehension and what, what are we doing for um, you know, our, our literature and our text and things like that, or our explicit vocab, and it all gets so much. And if you were to go about it like that and just wanting to implement everything at once, not only are you probably going to lose a lot of people, um, you're going to overwhelm yourself as a school leader, but teacher workload, uh, will, um, all sorts of problems that are going to come up. So my biggest advice would be to pick your targets for your school. I tend to go first with, okay, what's your phonics program? What are you using? Not only that, but what does it look like in the classrooms? Is it consistent? Is it being delivered consistently? Because if it's not, that's where you start. Uh, that looks at your daily review. But if, to go straight into daily reviews without a curriculum behind it, that's really hard as well because what mm. are teachers reviewing? So I think looking at your sequences, having that curriculum sitting behind, that's then going to inform what you should be putting in your daily review. Um, so talking to other schools as well, I know that workload is always mentioned when schools start to go down this pathway because they they think they have to, you know, making new resources that are aligned to structured literacy. Uh, but this is where, um, uh, learning a lot from other schools I've been in, uh, I've go and we've done school visits as well in Melbourne and talking to different principals, um, yeah. like Stephen Cap and Sarah Asim and things like that. And it's, it's all about collaboration yeah. and making sure teams are working together so that if you've got multiple year two teachers, you're all going to develop these resources together because the idea is you're going to share them or you're going to work on this particular resource. I'm going to work on this one based on our school templates because that's going to end up reducing all our workload. I think making explicit templates, um, whether that's on PowerPoint or whatever, at the beginning of the, the change journey, because what happens is schools want to do all this stuff and then later on they're like, oh, it'd be really good if everyone used this template, but then everyone's already made all these resources and they have to go back and um, make them all aligned to the new template. So start with exactly what you want your resources to look like from the start. Use consistent language, consistent templates, consistent engagement norm icons or whatever you want to whatever, call them from the beginning so that you, you're building up your resource bank as a school. The other thing is if you're a small school like we are, we're a really small school, single stream, collaborate with other schools that are on the same journey as you. Uh, we A lot of schools are trying to um, do similar things than you are and teachers are making the same resources as your teachers. So what we're doing now is Serpentine is working with Greenfields Primary School to develop some more knowledge units and also obviously working with Nathaniel Swain. Um, but where and we want to make some local knowledge units as well that are um, you know more specific to um, WA and some other ones on novel studies. But it's a huge task and um, knowledge units can take, you know, 40 plus hours to. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you've done a great um unit as well on the um, Bellatine Rabbit and I know how long that took you. And we're using your one too, actually. <laughs> 
So we're awesome. um, sharing the workload and um, we're having our school professional learning day together. And uh, it's almost like we're, we're working as one large school with two kind of different locations. And that's not to say we're identical and everything else, but there's certain things we're collaborating, collaborating on to reduce that workload. But definitely identifying your targets first. Uh, don't try and do everything at once. And um, having the implementation plan and giving that to staff is really important so that staff know in 2024, this is when we're going to look at mathematics. We're going to look at daily reviews for mathematics in this year. You're able to trial that before if you want to, um, and that's up to you. But by next year, this is when we're actually targeting it heavily as a school so people know what's coming and they know a timeline of when to expect things so it's not all at once. Yeah, you know, I really like some of the things that you said there, you know, starting off with picking your targets for the school um, and then not just picking them, but then also working out, well, this is what we're going to do. And then this is when we're going to check out how it's actually going. Um, and then actually seeing what is happening in the classrooms. I think that can be a step that we skip a lot. You know, we provide yeah. this professional development uh, and, you know, we, and that can be great. And then, mm -hmm. we, you know, we, we rub our hands and we think, yep, we're all good to go. Yes. But then the changes haven't actually uh, been enacted in the classroom. Yeah. And so then yes. we go and check our data later and mm. we, ha we haven't actually got those positive changes. And so then we start yeah. to think, oh, it's not working. But it's yeah. not that, you know, the professional learning was wrong. It's actually that the teachers haven't either understood it properly or they're, you know, they're time poor um, yeah. or, you know, they simply just didn't want to change what they were doing. Yeah, um, you know, so that's where, yeah, we've just got to kind of keep, keep everyone a bit accountable at the same time. And, um, you know, I think the, a great way to help teachers with that change process is by having those templates ready to go. Yes. You know, so you've yeah. got things that are ready for them to pick up and use. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we're just trying to kind of um, hold their hands a little bit along the way, um, you know, because it can be, like you, you've said so often um, in, in this chat, is it can be so overwhelming, you know, yes. at every level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just that change process can be really tricky yeah. to deal with. I think as uh, leaders as well, sorry, yeah, <laughs> to, um, I know um, it can be vulnerable, but we need to be modeling what we're expecting as well. We need yes. to be instructional coaches. Um, and that's not to say you need to be an expert on everything uh, and in the primary school curriculum. That's certainly not what I'm saying. But as your staff are learning, you need to learn that as a leader as well. And you need to be vulnerable enough to go and try that in classrooms and be vulnerable enough for teachers to watch you I think if you're going to be observing teachers and giving feedback or um, instigating change, long-lasting change. So I, I think it's really important that our middle leaders in particular are actually uh, curriculum instructional coaches uh, and ensuring they're actually going into the classrooms, not only observing but modelling as well. Uh, and that can be um pretty daunting, um, particularly when you're learning something new for the first time, uh, but it's to build that trust and show that vulnerability as well that um, goes a long way with that relationship forming with teachers too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I've been really fortunate to be in a position uh, kind of similar to you where uh, I'm I'm working at a couple of schools and, and one in particular is uh, in a, um, so it's called the Science of Learning and Reading Collective. So oh, yeah. we're, we're part of uh, 16, I think 16 different schools. Uh, so wow. it was started up by two principals, Matt Carter and Belinda Bristol. Uh, yeah, and they basically put it to uh, the net, this network of schools and said, you know, like, do you want to uh, collaborate together? Mm -hmm. So we've been working with uh, Training 24-7 as well. So um, Justin Cavone and um, jo Joanne Duna. 
and putting together a bit of a plan as to what this might look like. And, you know, there's a, like, like you said, there's a, this massive plan that's gone into it and, and yeah. they've been really mindful with not trying to get everything done at, at once as well. Yeah. Um, but what I've been, you know, really impressed with is just seeing, you know, some of the, the schools that are really jumping on board, the principals are modelling that, that lead learner which we know mm-hmm. is so important, you know, and mm-hmm. like you said, they, they might not uh, necessarily have been, um, you know, practising mm. this way in the classroom when they were in the classroom. And mm-hmm. so they've had to show that vulnerability that you talk about to mm-hmm. actually, uh, you know, put their hand up and say, yeah, look, I think, you know, the way I was teaching probably wasn't the, the most evidence-informed way of doing yeah. things. Um, but what we know now is that there is another way of doing it and this is the way that we should be teaching Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I, I find like, you know, when the principal is really on board and leading it, um, mm-hmm. it just makes it, it speeds up that process a bit more and, yes. and, it, and it does make it uh, a bit easier for those middle leaders in to feel okay with, you know, um, whether it's modelling lessons or, or getting into classrooms and because they feel supported, you know, like I think it's just really important to have yes. that, um, yeah. you know, that leadership group all on the same page. Yes, absolutely. And if you're asking someone to do something, you need to see if it, you know, how it goes and if it can be done yourself. Um, Even introducing new morphology resources. I've had a go in classrooms before um, because there were new resources that I'd made having a go myself. And yeah, some of the first lessons I was like, oh, don't don't watch me. I just need to, you know, (laughs) this is not going to go that well. Like, you know, and I stumbled here and there and I had you know the wrong base word up and it was you know a mess but uh well you know, it wasn't it wasn't complete right off but I would have um been embarrassed if it had been recorded and played to an audience let's put it that way so um I think but having those conversations and also having a laugh about that um, in yeah. a way um and reflecting on that is as a, a middle leader you're actually modeling that reflection process and it's okay to have those lessons to be like well that you know it was my first time trying trying that out this is what I'm going to change next time or maybe this would work for you when you try it so yeah you know it's <laughs> it is just such a, a complex journey for everyone involved and and I think sometimes we do just need to um not be so hard on ourselves <laughs> and, and which can be difficult when you know like you know you've got this kind of picture in your head of what what it could all look like uh, and you just want it to happen tomorrow, but yeah, it doesn't happen that way. Absolutely. Um, yeah, look, that was that was really great to hear about all of, all of that stuff. Uh, you know, in terms of implementing the changes, because that's that's the hard part. You know, is is doing it right um, <laughs> and and getting it to happen across the whole school. Mm. So, um, just with this next part, so this is the the rapid fire round. So, what I'm going to do, and some of these things you've already kind of spoken about, but what I want you to try to do is for each of these uh, topics, which can kind of be a little bit controversial in some ways, um, I want you to try to keep it to one sentence with your oh, response. Okay. Yes. You're going to get me in trouble, are you? Okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I think you'll be fine. Uh, and then um, if there's anything that you kind of wanted to elaborate on afterwards, we can we can do that as well. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. So the first one is uh, rotating literacy groups. Okay. Um, rotating literacy groups. Um, usually a time waster. Okay. Leveled readers. Chuck them in the bin. It's teaching phonemic awareness without letters. Um, I think once students start to learn the phonics code, we should be using letters. Okay. Genre-based writing units. Overdone, uh, but still ne- necessary. Uh, we need to also focus on our sentence structure and yeah, writing link to reading material 
and teaching comprehension skills? Overdone. Uh, and again, still ne- similar to the last question, still needed. There's still obviously evidence-based for teaching uh, explicitly, teaching new strategies, but we often see this rinse and repeat model of a comprehension strategy of the week. Oh, my pet peeve, you know, choosing texts um, based on the comprehension strategy of that week that you need to target um, because that's what we're used to and that's, um, you know, a hallmark of the balanced literacy as well. So going away from that model but still explicitly teaching them but remembering we also need to focus on things like background knowledge, vocabulary, um, unpacking sentences that for comprehension purposes, things like that. So I think we give them too much airtime. Yeah. That wasn't one sentence. <laughs> no, I'm glad you cleared it up though because, uh, yeah, it's definitely one that I think, uh, you know, like you mentioned, it's it's one of those byproducts of, of balanced literacy and, uh, you know, a lot of teachers can be a bit confused over what they should be doing for comprehension. Yeah, yeah. All right, so as we come to the end of this Knowledge for Teachers episode, I uh, just want to find out what other bits of knowledge do you feel more teachers need to have? So, you know, it might be based on, frequently asked questions that you've had or common misconceptions you've come across or even things that have made a huge difference to your own development? I think um, a couple of things. One, that you don't have to have this big budget to have structured literacy in your classroom. Uh, You can do, obviously, we want teachers to be accessing high quality professional learning and having resources in their classroom to help Uh, using a structured literacy approach but there are so many free things high quality free things out there now uh, and free doesn't doesn't necessarily mean lesser quality which we can't sometimes assume so uh, there's so many fantastic webinars um, and online professional learning now we've got amazing free phonics programs out there that are amazing quality uh, like the UFLI uh, and the forms uh, things like that we've got projects and initiatives that are happening, uh, syntax project and morphology project are a couple that obviously I've been involved in. So um, there's a lot of free content out there, um, all the work that Nathaniel Swain's doing in terms of the knowledge units to help you do this. So I suppose you don't need to have a big budget um, to implement practice that is aligned to the science of reading. Um, And I suppose the second thing would be to, to really look at, use your data uh, in your school or in your classroom to work out your priorities when you're first trying to change your practice uh, and using that data to make informed choices about what resources to use uh, and about uh, what content to be putting in your daily reviews or into your scope and sequences. I think we probably don't utilise data enough Um because we're not using the right data. So we have a tendency in schools to probably collect the wrong kind of data, uh, but we need to be changing to evidence-informed assessments because that is going to give us the right data to use. So there's no, it's not going to help doing, you know, um, benchmarking, running records. Uh, They're not going to help us to put in place a structured literacy approach aligned to the science of reading. So align your assessments because that will help you pinpoint exactly um, what your priorities need to be in your classroom or in your school. Yeah, great tips there. So, you know, um, I think the big one there, you know, is about not needing a big budget. Yeah. 
especially you, you come from a smaller school. I work at a smaller school as well. Yeah. And it can be hard for those schools when, uh, you know, that they look at all of these different resources out there or, uh, you know, all of these different people that they could get in to provide professional learning, but they just don't have the money to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's part of the reason why groups like Reading Science in Schools has, has taken off yeah. is because you've just got people providing, uh, you know, help for each other. Yeah. You know, you've got this network of teachers yeah. who are supporting each other and, and kind of not being any, not being judgmental at all. Uh, I think that's a, a really key point that you're getting from uh, the, the sort of culture that you're developing, um, you know, in that social media kind of space. And, um, you know, the data is a tricky one as well is because schools are, are driven by data. Mm -hmm. And when you've got those school leaders that aren't quite on board with, mm. you know, using this informed practice, and so they're just used to using the same sort of assessments. Yeah, um, you know, so it's definitely a big one as well. Is is just working out what assessments actually link up to what you're teaching in the classroom. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because if we're using the wrong assessments, um, you know, we're highlighting highlighting areas of need that um, might not really be there. It's that classic, you know, do a comprehension assessment and this finds the students need to work on the main idea. So we're all targeting the main idea for a few weeks. It's we're using the wrong assessments because we know that's not how comprehension usually works. What is actually going on? Have we measured their reading fluency? Is their comprehension uh, impaired because they're not at a, a rate that's going to enable that cognitive load to be used on understanding the text and things like that. So aligning um, assessment uh, is just as much as important as in line as 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 is aligning your instructional materials as well. Yeah, cool. So just before I let you go today, uh, you know, what else have you got coming up this year? You've always got different projects going on. Uh, what else is happening in, in your life? Uh, well, we've got um, the SOPLA organisation, the uh, Science of Teaching and Learning conferences happening around Australia. So I'll be in Sydney soon for that, which is exciting. And that's... Um, uh, going to go a couple of other places this year and reading science and schools are doing some really cool things as well this this year we're expanding a little bit our website's going to grow a bit more we're hoping to put some professional learning um, with some guest speakers and things on our website as well we've got sue hegland speaking first up and that was organized by jasmine shannon so uh the author of um bringing um, words to life so uh yeah we've got some really exciting stuff all free of course because that's what we labor of love that's what we love doing so <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah, look, it sounds really exciting and, and I'm looking forward to it and, you know, always following everything that you're doing. So it, it's just been uh, wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to you today. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of, of you know, your busy life. You know, we've all got families as well. And so, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you you um, yeah, taking the time to have a chat with me today and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you, Steph. And Thanks, Brendan. Thank you uh, for everything that you do. Thank you. I loved talking to Steph. She was really able to break it all down well. Here are my key takeaways. Find your people and take a solution-focused approach. Cut the fluff and use high-value instructional routines to get the biggest bang for your buck. The importance of high accuracy during fluency activities. Why we need to pick our targets. Then plan for how you're going to follow up and then do it. Start with assessment. Reduce workload through collaboration. The importance of leaders being the lead learners and putting themselves out there by possibly even trying out the new techniques as well. 
Develop consistent templates, norms, and routines across the school, but get it right from the start. Don't let a small budget stop you from providing an evidence-informed curriculum. Make sure that you subscribe to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast because I have some really interesting conversations coming up. I'll even be speaking to an implementation scientist from Cyprus. So share it with your colleagues and let me know what you think. I need specific, timely and actionable feedback. Until next time, keep teaching with purpose.